0: Thanks for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. We pray that this message is both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith in Jesus. We are happy to provide this resource to you, but as you know, this alone cannot meet the need we all have for fellowship and corporate worship. So we hope you'll be able to join us this Sunday at 10 a.m. Or if you're not in the area, give us a call and we'll do our best to help you find a good church to visit. For now, here is this week's message. Well, good morning. Good morning. I'm glad to be here with you as we continue this series, studying and looking at the life of, of David. The story we're going to look at this morning is one you're probably familiar with. Um, it's always framed as this story of this underdog going against this larger um, opponent. Of course, the story of David and Goliath is what I'm talking about. But this morning, what I hope to do for you, if nothing else, is to un children's Sunday school this story for you and help you understand that this isn't an underdog story at all, like not at all, because what we've learned so far from the life of David is that God chose him before he's done anything special. Nobody in his family believed in him. Nobody thought he was anything much, but God chose him to be the next king of Israel while he was out watching sheep. And we learned that when God calls us, it's not about what we can do, but it's about what he can do through us. And the important thing we learn about David is that he's a man after God's own heart. And that simply means he's willing to do what God asks him. If God asks him to do something, he's going to do it. Last week, we talked about waiting on God's timing. We learned although God called David and said, anointed him as the next king, it didn't happen right away. He had to wait for a while. He had some growing up to do. And we learned that God acts on behalf of those who wait for him. And so David did just that. He played the harp. He watched some sheep. He did all sorts of different things. He wasn't worried about making a name for himself. He knew that God could raise him up in his timing. But you see, nothing about the life of David says he's an underdog. Because David is a man chosen by God to be the next king. Does that sound like an underdog to you? A person that God chooses and said, here's where you're going. Here's what you're going to do. That's not an underdog at all. And what we can learn from this story are some great principles of faith. Some things that we can apply to our lives if we want to be faithful to the calling that God has placed on us us. We simply just need to look at the thing, look at life the way David looks at him and just do the things David does, rise up to challenges, which we'll, of course, look at. But where we all left off last week was David's dad, Jesse. Jesse sent him, his brothers were at war. He sent David, he said, take this bread and this cheese, take the bread to your brothers, take the cheese to the officers. Evidently, they were gonna make some grilled cheeses or something like that, I'm not too sure, but it's bread and cheese. So David has been given the task of being a gopher. The anointed king has been given the task of being the grilled cheese man. Go take these to the other people who are doing the serious stuff. And as soon as he arrives to the battle camp, He hears all the commotions from the front line. He hears, and excuse me, from the front lines, the armies are gathering up and he goes and looks for his brothers. When he goes to find his brothers, he sees this giant of a man about nine foot tall, maybe more, we don't know, but this big giant man comes out and hears these taunts. David, hears these taunts he's given the nation of Israel. Remember, he was saying, you send out your best man to fight me, I'll fight them, and whoever wins, wins the whole thing. We don't all got to die here. Let's just do this one-on-one battle. So David hears this, and here's what happens. 1 Samuel 17, we're jumping in the middle. It says, as soon as the Israelites' army saw him, that's Goliath, they begin to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant, the men asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. The king has offered a huge reward to anyone who kills him. He will give this man one of his daughters for a wife, and the man's entire family will be exempted from paying taxes. As we said, Saul's the biggest in Israel, but he doesn't want to face Goliath. So he offers whoever will fight him, and if they win, you don't have to pay taxes. And you instantly become royalty. You marry into the family. Verse 26, it says, David asked the soldier standing nearby, what will a man get for killing this Philistine and and ending his defiance of Israel? Who is this pagan Philistine anyways that he is allowing to defy the armies of the living God? And I love this because David is all upset. He's saying, who is allowing this man Like, why are you allowing this guy to talk like this about us? Like, remember, this is a giant. Why why are y'all doing this? Like, isn't someone going to do something about this? And so David starts questioning what's going on. Look at the next verse, verse 26. Seven says, and these men gave David the same reply. Remember, he said, what's the reward? He tells them, here's the reward. They said, yes, that is the reward for killing him." But when David's oldest brother, Elab, heard David talking to the men, he was angry. What are you doing around here anyways, he demanded. What about those few sheep you're supposed to be taking care of? I know about your pride and your deceit. You just want to see the battle. Now there's something very interesting going on here because yes, we know that his family looked down upon him. That's clearly shown they're minimizing his task of looking after those few little sheep while the big bad brothers are at war. So they're definitely minimizing who David is. David's simply doing what his dad asks. However, the author of 1 Samuel is probably pointing to something else because listen, David is a great man. But David is far from perfect. And what we're gonna find out in a few weeks is how prideful and deceitful David truly is. David too had core sins that needed to be managed and watched out for. David had these things in his life he needed to be careful of that he needed to put to death. And his brother, it seems like his brother, he knew about him. He saw him. And he's pointing these back out and throwing them back in David's face because don't your families know those things that you've always had a problem with? Those issues that other people don't know about, those things they've known the whole time because they grew up with you. See, we're reminded here that even David, need a, even David needed a savior. David does amazing things for the Lord, but like the rest of us, David isn't perfect. He has some major issues that destroy his family, and I think this is that foreshadowing of things to come. You see, don't forget, folks, everyone has sin, everyone has struggles, everyone battles with something, and I wish this wasn't true. I wish I could stand up here and tell you, listen, there will be a point in your life where you no longer have to face temptations, you no longer have to deal with this stuff, there's a way for it all to go away, but I'd be lying to you. Because all of us deal with it. There's sin, there's temptation, there's things we have to deal with, there's things we have to say no to. And at times we all just wanna throw up our hands and say, I'm done. I don't feel like dealing with this anymore. Y'all ever been there? If not, you haven't fought hard enough. Stop giving into it, keep fighting. There'll be points where you're just like, man, this is exhausting. But David too needed a savior. And we have to be reminded that our issues aren't what defines us. Jesus Christ defines us. He is our Lord and Savior. He's the perfect one who did what we don't have to do. You're not going to get it 100% right. He's already done that for us. And out of our great love for him, we then serve him with our everything. But David, even with his imperfections, wants to serve God well. And so now they get into some brotherly banter. If you have brothers, you get this. Verse 29. Says, what have I done now? David replied. I was only asking a question. He walked over to some others and asked them the same thing and received the same answer. He keeps investigating this thing. He wants to know what this reward is. He wants to know why I haven't been taken care of yet. Then David's question was reported to King Saul and the king sent for him. So David wants to know, Hey, why are you always picking on me? Because that's what brothers and guys do. David, you're learning a hard lesson. We all got to grow up with to learn that. Just, that's just what happens. But notice he's, he's sitting here just investigating, wants to know. And then it finds out, Saul finds out that he's investigating. It's like, it seems that some new guy, some guy who just showed up, wants to do something about this. So he calls him over. Look at verse 32. David's standing in front of the king. He says, don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. I'll do it. Y'all don't do it. I'll take care of it. Don't be ridiculous, Saul replied. There's no way you can fight this man and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. David is confident. David is ready to fight. And Saul doesn't seem to think he can win. He's just a boy. This means he's probably under 20 years old, which was the legal age to join the military. He doesn't have the experience. And in Saul's eyes, yes, David is an underdog. But folks, Saul is faithless. We don't take our cues on how to think and how to behave from people that are faithless. Remember, why is he being removed? He don't listen to the Lord. He doesn't have that kind of faith. So we don't take our cues from people who don't believe the same thing we believe. He's being removed from this. Saul sees fear David's like, I got I got this. Like, what are you talking about? I'll do it. Y'all don't wanna do it? I'll, I'll take care of it. Look at his reply. He says in verse 34, here's why. He said, but David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock, I go after it with the club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. Listen to this. You gotta love David. He says, and if the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw. and club it to death. You're like, Brian's kind of violent. Well, what do you do with a bear or lion that's trying to kill you? All right, you don't pet it. He grabbed it by its face. Oh, was pretty cool, right? Catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I have done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defiled the armies of the living God. David points to his experience. While he was waiting on God, kicking around dust in the middle of the field, evidently he was learning some things. Evidently he was dealing with some things. And now it's as if God was preparing him for this moment of battle. And let's get this straight, folks. Fighting a lion or bear would not be fun. Do you think it'd be fun hand-to-hand combat with a lion or bear? You're like, no, that'd be, it would be absolutely horrible. Sure, it would make for a great story later in life. But in that moment, watching somebody else's sheep, having to grab a lion or a bear, I don't even know how that works, but however he does that, like that would be terrifying, it would be horrifying. Sometimes in the moment of you doing what God asks you to do, it's terrifying, it's horrifying, it's not easy. But he's doing things in you and through you. He's, he's preparing you. So this isn't an easy task, but he made it through. And look what he says next, Verse 37. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from this Philistine. God's got it. David's not just confident in his own abilities, he's confident in the Lord. He knew God could and would save him in this moment. You see, we don't see David trying to compartmentalize, trying to figure out how God is, have an essay or read some books. He's like, I don't know how this works. He's like, I don't know. God is faithful. And if I step out on faith, God's going to come through. I don't know how it all works. It just works this way. If I step out on faith, God's faithful and God's going to come through and take care of this. Verse 37, second part of 37. It says, Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead, he said. And may the Lord be with you. Then Saul gave David's own armor, a bronze helmet and a coat of maul. And David put it on, strapped the sword over it and took a step or two to see what it was like for he had never worn such things before. He says, I can't go in these, he protested to Saul. I'm not used to them. So David took them off again. What comes to my mind here, of course, is kids playing dress up. Of course, Saul's stuff doesn't fit. David didn't wanna be weighed down by the stuff of other people. And the imagery needs to remind us that you and me, we don't need to be weighed down by other people's stuff. Because people wanna dress you up and make you to be something you're not. You ever had that happen? Nobody? Just me? I don't know tell you then. This is just for me today. He didn't want to be weighed down by all that stuff that Saul wanted to put on him. Remember, King Saul is the biggest person. Chances are he's never had to fight someone bigger than him. He's always been the big, the strong one. But David, I think David was around 5'8". I think that's the holy height. I don't know why. It just kind of came to me. I think that's like the perfect height for warriors. And so David being a little bit shorter, he had to fight for things. He had to work hard for things. He wasn't the largest and in that he had to develop skills and abilities that these other people, this larger person didn't have to do. Saul didn't need to work on boldness. He was huge. David had to work on courage because he was smaller. You see, God, excuse me, David was used to overcoming adversity. Things weren't easy for him. And I don't know about you, but it'd be nice to be the tallest. It'd be nice to be the strongest, the richest, have the best looks. I mean, all those things would be amazing and great. But what we see here, what we see here is that perhaps those things that you have that you don't like, those less than admirable things, those things you wish you could change about yourself. Have you ever thought that maybe God's given them to you so you could develop character? So you could develop courage? So you wouldn't just rely on your natural gifting. You'd have to rely upon him for things in this life to develop that faith and that character. You see, there's strength to becoming an overcomer. And that's exactly what David was. He was an overcomer. He he wasn't worried about what other people thought, wasn't worried about what other people did. He was ready to just step up and do what God asked him to do. Look at verse 40. It says this. It says, And so he picked up five smooth stones from the stream and put them into his shepherd's bag. Then, armed with only his shepherd's staff and sling, he started across the valley to fight the Philistine. Goliath walked out towards David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneered in contempt at this ruddy faced boy. Now, David goes with just this sling and this staff and these stones, and I hate to break it to you, but the way this story has been understood, that that David just has this measly old weapon and going up against this guy with a sword is just completely incorrect. Folks, slingers were nothing to play with. They are the snipers of their day. And I mean that, like for a look it up. This isn't just this measly old guy. This is a guy who's competent, capable, and able with a very, very deadly weapon. You see, scholars say the size of the stones were probably about the size of a tennis ball or lemon. You wanna get hit in the head with that? Maybe it was smaller, we don't know. But what they do know is the slingers can throw the stones about a hundred miles per hour. Does that sound like, it's not a little toss, is it? And so thankfully, due to modern technology and the chronograph, they've chronographed all of this. While there are plenty of variables we don't have to get into, they suggest the impact of this stone is between a nine millimeter and 44 magnum. This is the equivalent of David bringing a gun to a sword fight. It was nothing to play with. So when we look at David like, oh, this measly got. No, he's smart. He's not going to go hand-to-hand combat with this guy. He brings his proficient weapon. He's outsmarting this giant. The giant doesn't see it coming because look, look what he says now. He says, am I a dog? Next verse, next slide. Am I a dog? He roared at David that you come at me with a stick. He doesn't see the slaying folks. He has a shepherd's stack. He's distracted him. David's smart. He's like, yeah, you just look at the stick. I got something right here for you. It's about to go over my head, this, this other thing. You don't even see it. That you come at stick and he curses David by the names of his gods. Come over here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and wild animals. Goliath yelled. I'd venture to guess David's distracting him. He's trash talking David, and what I really like, David's pretty good at it too. Look at what he says next. David replied to the Philistine, "You come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come at you in the name of the Lord of." Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defiled, today the Lord will conquer you and I will kill you and I will cut off your head. He's not done. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men. Our right, Goliath said, I'm gonna throw your bodies to the bird. David's like, look, I'm gonna cut your head off and all the people around you. I'm gonna throw their bodies to the birds and the wild animals and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. See, folks, we want to make this metaphorical and talk about our own giants. Folks, this was a for real giant, someone who was trying to kill him. This isn't a small thing. This is a very big thing. This is war, the adrenaline, the fighting. Like, this isn't a metaphorical thing. This is real life he's dealing with. Then he says in verse 47, he said, and everyone assembled here will know That the Lord rescues his people, but not with swords and spears. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. At the end of the day, David knew what the Lord's battle was. Church, the battle is still the Lord's. It's not for you to fight. It's for him to fight on your behalf. David had some things going for him, but ultimately he had to trust in the Lord. He knew he wasn't alone. He was fighting with the God of angel armies on his side. I mean, that's pretty cool imagery. And again, the interwoven theme is the faithfulness of God through his faithful people. Look at verse 48. There's a big buildup to this story, but it ends very quick. Verse 48. As Goliath moved closer to attack, David quickly ran out to meet him. Reaching into his shepherd's bag and taking out a stone, he hurled it with a sling and hit the Philistine in the forehead. The stone stank in and Goliath stumbled and fell face down to the ground. You ever had one of those movies that had such a big buildup for the final scene and then it's over like that and you're kind of let down? That's kind of what happens here. It's just done. done. One stone, over. He's proficient, he's able, it's, it's, it's done. Verse 50, David. So David triumphed over the Philistine with only a sling and a stone, for he had no sword. Then David ran over and pulled Goliath's stone from its sheath, and David used it to kill him, cut off his head. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. Evidently, they didn't want to be the slaves of Israel like they agreed to from the beginning. So they took off. Israel chases after them. And everything David said actually came to fruition. It's a big bloody scene after that. You can read it on your own. But David won. You see, this isn't an underdog story. This is a story of the faithfulness of God through his faithful people. And as Christians, we see and we are reminded how this story points us to the true anointed one who has come to fight our greatest need. You see, Jesus stood in the gap of our fears and our sin and death. He took death upon himself on that cross. He rescued us and stood forward and did what nobody else could do. See, Jesus died for us. And while the faithless scoffed at Jesus and who he was, Jesus knew who he was. He was the savior of the world who died and rescued us from our sin because he rose from the grave, folks. Jesus defeated it all. But the story of David is simply a story of the faithfulness of God through his, excuse me, through the faith of his people, through the, through his faithful people. You see, the past two weeks, we've learned that God chose David. He chose him and he empowered him. We learned that God acts on behalf of those who wait. And here we see David's faithfulness. It's nothing about an underdog. It's about the anointed king, about what God is going to do. You can't stop. What God wants to do, we can't get in the way of. When God is on your side, you are never an underdog. And I have a couple of points, a couple of principles that I want us to look at this morning so we can learn how to be faithful like David. First, look at this. David was a problem solver. This is very important. David was a problem solver. He took ownership and responsibility for what was going on around him. Listen, sheep need to be watched. He'll do it. Harp needs to be played. Got it covered. Someone needs to look after the family. No problem. Someone needs to be the grilled cheese man. He got it. Someone needs to stand up and fight this giant. He'll do that too. When a problem presented itself like a leader does, he stood up and took care of it. He didn't wait for someone else to do it. He didn't fuss about how no one else was doing anything about what was going on. He just did it. Here's what's important. Nothing was beneath David, and nothing was too large for David. He looked at problems as opportunities to be faithful. Number two, we see David used his experience. This is a big one. David used his experience to justify his actions. He used his experience to justify his actions. Because he did the little things, he was given more to conquer. Jesus tells us that those who are faithful with the small things will be given more responsibility. Many times, church, we look at our past experience as justification for why we shouldn't do something. Well, I did it all those years, someone else's turn. David said, Well, I did it all those years, so there's no one more capable and able than me to do it. Right? David looked at what he had done for why he should do it. The person of faith uses how God has designed him, the experience and talents and abilities that he's given them to justify why that problem or that need, that thing that needs to be done, they're like, Well, God's made me for it, I got it covered. I'll step in and do it. And then number three, we see David used his faith to justify his actions. You see, David knew that God was in control. Therefore, all those problems and opportunity that presented themselves, he said, was from the Lord. Must be from the Lord. Lord's moving work and I'm here. I mean, this must be from him. You see, folks, some of us aren't going to our Goliath moments because we're not willing to deliver grilled cheeses. David was just taking bread and cheese somewhere, and this thing presented itself. He wasn't looking for it, he was being faithful in those small things. Some of us want to just hurry up and get to the big important things so we could be famous and known. And God's saying, Go deliver grilled cheeses. Go do the small things. Go do those things you don't think are important because that's where I want you, that's where I need you. You see, David knew that God was faithful. He knew his calling was to be faithful. And when you embrace what God has said about you, when you understand, Christian, what God has said about you, then you too can walk faithfully for him because God says you are loved. He says you were chosen. He says you are his child. He says you've been gifted. He's empowered you. He's designed you. He's created you to be exactly how you are. You can throw out all that other garbage that people say about you. You can throw out all those lies that the enemy throws at you. You can throw all that out and choose to believe what God has said about you and rest in the faithfulness of God. And when you put all of that together, folks, that he's a problem solver, a bold man of faith, he saw the challenge said, I'll get it done. When you take his experience and you take that he's a man of faith, why wouldn't he stand up to the challenge? Well, of course he would. Who else was going to do it? And the thing about this is there's nothing that David has that we don't have. Most of us probably don't have to worry about showing down with a nine foot tall man for a one on one fight to the death. That happened to y'all before? Y'all must not be understanding me. We can talk at the store. I'll start right back over. Yeah, like we don't have to worry about that. But there are so many other problems to be solved and not metaphorical giants. I mean, real life, actual situations, problems that need to be dealt with. But far too many of us cower behind excuses rather than stand up to solve the problems. And all of us can find reasons to ignore things or you can find reasons to step up. Folks, you find what you're looking for. Did you know that? You want a reason to do it? You'll find it. You want a reason to cower behind it? You'll find it. Which one are you going to be? You see, this story isn't out of reach for us. In fact, it needs to remind us that like David, we can step up and stop excusing our way out of things that need to be done. You see, there's so many different ways this story can apply to your personal life. And for whatever that is for you, move forward with it. And, and that's Awesome. But wait, may we never forget that the Bible was written not for selfish motivations, but the Bible is written to understand how God works and how we act, that God is moving and how we need to move and that God is alive and active and still moving. And he chooses to use people like you and me, messed up as we are, for his glory. And so because we know that he's still working through his church to accomplish his purpose, the question I have for you this morning is simply this. Why aren't you standing up for the problems that need to be done, the problems that need to be solved? Why aren't you looking at problems as opportunities to get involved? And I suspect you say, this is what I think you're saying to me. You're saying, wait, Brian, there's problems? You mean I didn't know. If i known there was problems or things that need to be done or errors that need to be stepped in, Brian, if you just told me about them, then I would, of course, step up. I mean, of course I would. Well, I am so glad that you were here this morning and me, you were on the same page. Because here are the problems slash opportunities for you this morning. Number one, our problems, your opportunities. That's the next part of this, this sermon. We need preschool and children disciple makers. We need people who understand the importance of teaching kids God's word and giving themselves to this cause. Yes, there will be times you will miss my amazing and wonderful preaching. Yes, that is true. But the good news is we record it and you can watch it later, just like you do all your favorite TV shows and anything else in this world. You can, of course, just watch it later. We need more adult Sunday school teachers. Number two, it's coming up, it's coming up. We need more adult Sunday school teachers or small group leaders. We need people who are willing to help us build community within the church. As our church grows larger larger, we need to help people build relationships with other people. So we need you if you want to help people grow in their faith and bring community together. We need more of these workers. We need people to come together for our homebound efforts. I'll just talk; they'll show up. We need people to help on our homebound. Uh, excuse me, homebound leaders. So here's what we have as a church: we have 38 people on our homebound list or nursing home list. We need a group of people who want to show them love. Figure out how, figure a strategy out to love on them, continue to disciple them and care for them. We don't want them to, to, to be missed. We, we want them to know that we love them and we care about them. So we need a team of people who are saying, hey, look, those 38 people, we got it. We, we want to love on them and we're, we're going to take care of this. We need support groups in our community. Listen, there is no reason why people should have to drive all the way to Myrtle Beach to find a support group for things they're dealing with. Have you ever drove down, driven down 501? That means every support group will have to have anger management as a part of the group. <laughs> right? Like it's, we can't have this. We've just, you know, Alan's recently done the, the grief group. We've started here at a church. A lot of you should have been there for that. A lot, a lot more of you need to come out to that, support those things. We know you need it and, and you need to be a part of those things. But we need caregiver groups here. As people age and spouses and children are taking care of their their family, that is ridiculously hard on them. And we need groups in Conway for people to come together. Divorce care is another one. People are going through all sorts of things. They need help. um, We're looking at getting a group together that can help people get to the doctors and medical appointments who can't drive. We need all sorts of different care groups here in Conway for Conway. And I think our church should be able to take care of that. We need more youth disciple makers. I mean, we need people who have a passion and a desire to help youth um, know more about Jesus. The youth need to know that adults love them and care about them. They don't listen to their parents. You know that. You didn't listen to yours. But we need other ones who will come right beside of them and love and help them. In fact, this is arguably the most difficult time in any human being's life. So we need more people who say, hey, I, I'm, I'm gonna give myself to that. I wanna be a part of that. We need more people stepping up financially and giving more generously. You say, wait, Brian, do we have a money problem? Nope, we're ahead of budget. We're good there. However, I want us to lead the way in ridiculous generosity. I would love for our church, I'm not joking here, I'd love for our church to give away millions of dollars. I'd love for our church to build people homes. I'd love for our church to give away cars to people who need it. Like, we can plan to do I, give away millions of dollars. I'd love to plan that. So go ahead and commit to that right now. Write that check for that, okay? Make that happen. No, but we would love to do these things, but we're pragmatic. So we're gonna plan according to how you give. Understand, some of you have the gift of generosity. That's great. Just keep on doing it. But we want to be generous and give as a church. We wanna be known for giving things away. We need, we need help with people who wanna invest in marriages. Marriage is one of the things that I believe the church has plenty to say about and we need to stop outsourcing that and come together to figure this out. We need leaders who wanna own and run a highly involved ministry. And I mean, they're like, hey, we got this. We're gonna devote our lives to this. We wanna see people's marriages get better. So we need people to help in that. We need people to step up and help us in worship. The reason why our choir loft isn't full isn't because of the staff because people don't step up to be a part of it we would love to have people in the choir and sing and do all this so if you're a singer we need you up here and if you're sitting around somebody who sings well before they leave tap them on the shoulder and be like look you need to get up there you need to be a part of this we got seats just waiting for you to sit in they're more comfy too come on And we need to figure out how to make coastal better than Clemson. I am tired of people moving. Those are for specific people here, but we need to figure that out. Someone figure out how to make coastal better, please. Thank you. But folks, we have plenty of problems that need to be solved. Plenty of problems. And we need leaders to step up. We don't need anybody to make excuses and we don't need anybody to make problems. We need problem solvers. And the great thing about our church is, and most of you know this, our church is growing. But that doesn't mean anything if you're simply sitting in the pew taking up space. There are plenty of churches out there whose ministry model will accommodate you on that, but not this church. We want you to give your life away in the name of Jesus Christ. We want you to wear tennis shoes and T-shirts to church because you're getting sweaty and messy, dealing with other people's kids in a very hot room. Those of you in preschool ministry are like, yes, that's actually exactly what happens. We're working on the AC, by the way. You see, David couldn't wear the armor because it was slowing him down. And I want this to be the place where you can't wear fancy suits on Sundays because you don't want to get them all messed up from the work you're expecting to do because you're coming into work. I mean, I've never seen someone wear a suit that was planning on getting dirty. Have you? Chuck, you ever wear a suit in the barn? Sure didn't, don't you? Like, no, I plan on getting dirty. You don't wear suits in that. Of course not. Therefore, I am banning all suits. Last week was the last suit. I'm just kidding. I don't care what you wear at all. I don't care at all what you wear, but this is very important. I do care what you do. And if this is your church home, we want you to get involved and give your life away for the benefit of others in the name of Jesus Christ. We want you to be a problem solver who uses their experience and faith to step up for the Lord. And if something needs to get done, if the anointed prince of Israel can deliver grilled cheeses, if the creator of the universe can die on a bloody cross, surely as his followers, we can step up and we can give ourselves away for the benefit of other people. Will you pray with me?